In 1776, seeking to stop a colonial revolt in America, King George hired 30,000 Hessian mercenaries to bolster his ranks. The invaders fought for the British for seven years before surrender at Yorktown. But unbeknownst to anyone, a second invasion had been launched by the Hessians. Stowed away in the mercenaries' bedrolls and ration bags, thousands of winged insects, known as Hessian flies, took flight to destroy America's first crops. The small pests took nearly a century to reach the Great Plains from their beachhead in New England. However, by the late 1800s, these invasive flies were destroying half the yield of Missouri Valley grain crops. In decades that followed, more invaders of different species arrive, staging new attacks by land, sea, and air. But unlike the stealthy Hessian fly, these new arrivals were intentionally released. The creatures quickly became associated with, and used to malign, hundreds of thousands of immigrants who had arrived to cultivate the prairie. I'm Ben Bohall. And I'm Nick Batter. And this is Neglecta. In the summer of 1890, a man walked into New York's Central Park, opened a large cage, and released exactly 60 birds all pearlescent black and speckled white. The birds were specially imported from Europe, part of a larger plan to introduce North America to every species of bird mentioned in a Shakespeare play. And so, these 60 starlings took flight in their new longitude, simply because of a passing reference in Henry IV, Part One. I'm Stephen Bueller, Education Director for the Flatwater Shakespeare Company and Aaron Douglas Professor of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. You want to give it a whirl? Maybe a couple takes. We'll yeah, see. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Okay. I will find him when he lies asleep, and in his ear I'll holla, Mortimer! Nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer and give it him to keep his anger still in motion. Although the culprit behind the Starling release was certainly a Shakespeare fan, he probably wasn't a Shakespeare scholar. In over three dozen plays, there are hundreds of references to over 60 distinct species of bird. Joe's bird, the princely eagle, Knight's herald, the clamorous owl, the slow-winged turtle dove. Yet strangely, the Starling was chosen. And that's what's amazing about this story, because in context, the Starling is an annoyance. It's a way of getting back at Henry IV and bugging him. The annoying traits of the starling should have been no surprise. Its Latin name, vulgaris, hints at its tendency to fill the air with noise, destroy crops, and litter the ground with waste, all traits long known in its native Europe. From autumn to spring, millions of starlings blacken the sky each evening at Lanivite near Bodmin in Cornwall. A great plantation of bamboo canes provides their resting place for the night, in just the same way as the National Gallery does in London. The plantation manager and his foreman examine the result of the starlings' visits, a damaged crop that in hard cash means a heavy loss to them. It didn't take long for the starling to reach the Midwest. The flock of 60 grew a million-fold, blackening spring fields just as crops were being planted. Even by night, the starling brought destruction. The weight of the roosting birds brought down telephone lines and even snapped the hands off of church clock towers. 
rural communities staged creative counterattacks. A radio station in Creston, Iowa, brought a caged starling into the studio. In the evening, as the flocks outside began to roost, the cage was shaken, and the distressed bird's cry was broadcast over the air. Hundreds of homes cranked their sets near open windows, hoping to scare the flocks away. In the end, the ploy only succeeded in pushing the large flocks to homes without radio sets for a few weeks. The starling was not the only invasive species introduced by a Shakespeare fan. One of Nebraska's earliest Shakespeare scholars, William Lou May, was also a founding member of the state's fish commission in the 1870s. Tasked with stocking hundreds of ponds, May's favorite fish was the carp. It ate everything and grew enormous. A perfect fish to feed the frontier. And it probably didn't hurt that the carp is mentioned in Hamlet. Your bait of falsehood takes this carp of truth. The young carp quickly fattened in Nebraska's waters, and May became an instant hero. He received national titles and accolades for the carp's triumph. Federal officials brought him to Washington, and a nationwide stocking of carp commenced soon after. The governor sent a small delegation to meet with President Cleveland about appointing May as the National Fish Commissioner. However, May remained in Nebraska, living as a minor celebrity, held for helping to feed poor and rural communities. He went into business with his brothers, with a large wholesale grocery venture in Fremont, with May specializing in sales of carp and other table fish. His expertise served him well his entire life. One winter's night, he was held up by a robber, but beat the mugger back by hitting him in the head with a large frozen fish. May and his carp were especially beloved by Nebraska's burgeoning immigrant communities. Carp was prized by Germans, Czechs, Jews, and Slavs. The settlers living by lakes stocked by May's fisheries, and who had otherwise been accustomed to eking by on thin winter rations, were suddenly finding 10-pound carp at the dinner table, and holiday recipes from the old country were once again possible. For German communities, this meant catching live December carp, fattening the fish for a week in the house's bathtub, and then pan-frying the fish as the centerpiece of a Christmas Eve feast. The descendants of these German immigrants still have a strong presence in small communities across Nebraska. Today, Germans congregate to celebrate their heritage over beer, carp, and tomato kraut. We join the festivities in Syracuse just in time to catch their annual wiener dog races. On your mark, get set, go. Oh, that's a photo finish. 
But the history of Germans in Nebraska is not a completely happy one. Many subsequent waves of German settlers arrived here as refugees of oppression, poverty, and war. In a terrible irony familiar to many refugees, they arrived in a new homeland, only to be blamed by their neighbors for the evils from which they had fled. And as the United States waged war against Germany in the early 20th century, some Nebraskans staged attacks on their neighbors of German ancestry. In one episode, three young German-Americans were beaten by a mob, covered in boiling tar, and left for dead. Seeking relief, some German families changed their names. Entire towns did the same. Berlin, Nebraska became Odo, Nebraska. Germantown became Garland. The Nebraska legislature joined in the attacks, passing laws which prevented Germans and other new Americans from studying foreign language in schools. When a school teacher was caught helping a student read the Bible in German, he was arrested, put on trial, and fined. After years of court battles, the United States Supreme Court held Nebraska's law unconstitutional in a landmark decision, Meyer v. Nebraska. Unfortunately, the ruling came too late for many schools in German communities, shuttered in the intervening years. The strangest attacks were focused on German cuisine. Food that had already been assimilated into American culture was simply rebranded. Frankfurters became hot dogs, sauerkraut became liberty cabbage. This same anti-immigrant sentiment fueled the local temperaments movement, leading Nebraska to pass statewide prohibition two years before the rest of the country in a move partially motivated at shuttering a number of German breweries in Omaha. And so it was inevitable that the once beloved carp would fall from favor disappearing from tables and iceboxes across the state. In introducing the carp, William Lou May had been careful to only release the fish into contained ponds. Carp are able to grow to such enormous sizes because they outcompete native fish for resources. But these traits that had initially made carp so desirable quickly became a problem. Worse yet, carp started turning up in unintended places, like streams and private lakes. Um, I'm Allison Zock and I coordinate the Nebraska Invasive Species Program. People have moved fish. They've thought that a fish is good and so then they introduce it into a water body intentionally. It wasn't long before the carp, like the Hessian fly and the starling before it, overwhelmed their host ecosystems, exploding in numbers and choking out native species. This was compounded by the sudden public boycott of carp at the dinner table. By this time, the carp had appeared in the Missouri River and its spread could no longer be contained. The public was outraged by the carp invasion, blaming Germans for transplanting them in an act of culinary and environmental sabotage. Official federal websites today still explicitly blame German communities for the introduction of the carp to the waters of the Missouri. But the historical record implicates another culprit. Before the turn of the century, 
May and his colleagues were awash with the idea of introducing new fish species to feed the western states. One of the most ambitious efforts involved the creation of special train cars, called aquarium cars, filled with water and live fish. The very first aquarium car was destined for California, full of dozens of species of fish, mollusk, and crustacean. But tragedy struck as the train passed the Elkhorn River. A timber span gave way, the bridge collapsed, and the aquarium car and its thousands of guild passengers crashed into the water below. In the aftermath of the accident, some locals delighted at the temporary appearance of oysters and lobster downstream, but the train wreck also coincides with the first reported carp in the state's river networks. Most likely, the carp followed the current from the Elkhorn to the shallow waters of the Platte and ultimately to the confluence of the muddy Missouri. The carp menace was not the result of scheming and disruptive immigrants, but simply a mishap involving well-meaning public officials and a poorly built wooden bridge. Today, the carp is still an unwanted presence in the river ecosystems, especially as new species of carp have been introduced, threatening native fish and stirring up sediment along river bottoms. Some communities have resorted to extreme measures to curb the invader. They're looking at um, poisons that we could put in the water that would only kill these guys. They're also looking at at water cannons and um, injecting CO2 into the water. And though it turns out that immigrants were not to blame for the problem, their approach to carp might actually be part of the solution. We ventured to South Omaha where people have been eating carp for generations at places like Joe Tess's. This is. Oh. How can you tell? Yeah. <laughs> you want some hot sauce? Do you recommend the hot sauce? Oh, that's, that's if you want it. Okay. <laughs> I trust you. Oh, yeah. Hot sauce. Pickles. Carp. Um, so we should probably eat it at the same time? Yeah, let's do it. Hot sauce or no hot sauce? Uh, I'm going to try without hot sauce first and see. Okay. Me too. All right, ready? Countdown. Three, <laughs> two, one. I like it. Yeah, not bad. I guess for some reason I was thinking, I had this thought going into it that it wasn't gonna be that good, but it's actually not bad. Yeah, it's pretty tasty. Yeah, not bad at all. All right, pickles and hot sauce can only improve the situation. That's true. In the end, most invasive species are here to stay. Luckily, May's successors at the state and local levels have adopted a more cautious approach to managing our natural resources and protecting native species. But as for the country's first invasive species, the Hessian fly, introduced during the American Revolution, it only terrorized the Midwest for a few years. The huge swarms became feasts for another invader, the English sparrow. The sparrow's success against the fly was a happy accident. The bird was intentionally introduced to America by fans of Shakespeare. From Germanfest in Odo County, this is Neglecta. This episode was made with the help of Steve Bueller and Allison Zachs. 
More info about how to help control the spread of invasive species can be found at neinvasives.com. Original music composed by Mark Nickel, and you can join Nick and me as we continue to explore the history and culture of the Great Plains. Visit us online at neglected.com. You can also find us on iTunes and Twitter. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>